leaving the ghost light burning, illuminating fallback, and embrace of the fullness of you. Chapter one, the fluidity of development. Early in my doctoral program, I encountered adult development theory. Most of us have some familiarity with child development theory, but theories of adult development are lesser known. The prevailing assumption up until about 45 years ago was that once we stopped growing physically, we stopped growing altogether. A few pioneers built upon the work of child developmentalists like Jean Piaget to articulate and test a theory of adult development, our capacity to continue to grow cognitively, emotionally, egoically, and spiritually even after our physical development has ceased. These theorists, including Jane Levenger, William Torbert, Robert Keegan, and Suzanne Cook-Reuter, are constructive developmentalists. That is, they believe that humans are not simply predetermined by the stimuli they encounter, but rather actively participate in constructing their reality in the context of their environments. Similar to child development, the tenets of constructive developmental theory state that we develop through stages of increasing complexity and that development is forward moving and inclusive of the prior stages that we have grown through. Moreover, the adult developmentalists hold that there can be substantive enduring shifts in how adults come to know and re-know the world. The theory of adult development aims to articulate and predict the patterns of human growth that are possible throughout adulthood. Rooms in a house. One way to think about development is to imagine that you have a house with many rooms. In the earlier stages of development, you have access to only a few of these rooms. In fact, you don't even realize that other rooms exist. You think you opted into a one bedroom, one bath unit with the kitchen and living room. As time goes on, you realize that there's a door in your house that you've never noticed. You're curious about what's behind this door, but it's locked. So you begin to strategize how to open it. Over time, you make some progress. You discover a set of keys, so you try each of the keys and eventually one works, but the door still won't open. It's as if something is blocking it. So you keep pushing up against that door, perhaps tentatively at first, then with more force. What is behind here? And might I really need it? Over time, after many attempts to open the door to the closed off room, exhaustion sets in, or frustration, or doubt and a tinge of fear. You start to wonder what that room, a potential Pandora's box might hold. And you begin to think, I've been pretty comfortable here with my bedroom, kitchen, living room, and bath set up. I'm good. So for a time, you settle back into the space that you have, the one that you opted into those many years before. Before long, curiosity gets the best of you. 
Or maybe you really do begin to feel the confines of your smaller space and think, I could sure use more square footage. So you go back and push on that door a little bit harder. And eventually you're able to open that door enough to poke your head through the opening and get a glimpse into the room. What a discovery. This room has a distinct style, unique colors and patterns, new furniture, different tools. There's that thingamabob I've been looking for. You exert more effort to get the door open and acquire a solid standing in the room. You become enchanted as you explore. Across the room, you see a window. And when you gaze out, you see things outside of your house that you never noticed before. You see the windows in the other rooms of your house face a different direction. Through this window, you're looking out on a beautiful tree that is blooming. You see a dead patch of grass that the sprinkler doesn't seem to be reaching. And wait a minute, there's a trail head that you didn't know existed. You turn around and look back through the doorway to the other parts of the house, the rooms you've lived in all these years. Suddenly you see these rooms and what's inside of them from a completely different perspective. You notice things in and about those old rooms for the first time. Perhaps you notice that the first couch you bought has now become a bit threadbare. Perhaps you notice the artwork on the walls looks a bit dated, a reflection of a former sense of style that now feels off. Then you see your favorite chair, the one you love to cuddle up and read in, and look at it longingly because you know it's been a place of solace for you in the past. And so goes it as you discover and expand into more and more rooms of your developmental house over time. These rooms allow you access to a different way of seeing things within the house of self, a different way of seeing things outside the house. Similarly, as we develop into greater complexity, we have access to more options and different perspectives on what's both inside and external to us. And those earlier things, the house that we first took up occupancy in with the original rooms, still exist. And they still have tremendous value. You certainly still need a kitchen and a bathroom, but you have this expansive other space that offers you new capacities, additional perspectives, and increased options. The non-linear nature of development. When I encountered adult development theory early in my doctoral program, it felt so freeing to see that there had been some sort of path in my life toward, well, something other than what had been before to see that there was more that lay in front of me, to be able to make sense of myself through a framework that spoke to me and my experience of human becoming so clearly. Except for one little thing. My path toward learning, growth, and greater complexity had not always been so linear, onward, 
and upward. You see, while the theory contained hints at a more fluid movement up and down the spectrum of developmental capacity, the idea that we may occasionally not have access to our fullest level of sense-making, to all of the rooms in our developmental house that we had heretofore unlocked, was not explicit. Certainly, the theorist addressed how we experience a seesaw motion back and forth between the stage that had held us and the one that is emerging as we transition to the next stage of development. And those who are really interested in the fine print of the theory would find that there are several incremental way stations along the road from one stage to the next. In fact, we are very rarely solidly in one stage. We live most of our lives in transition between set, distinct levels of development. The lines that would seem to bifurcate our capacity for sense-making, according to the handy stages and definitions of the theory, are in real life blurred, with us being on the way from the prior and to the next delineated stages, with one shoulder through the doorway that we are trying mightily to distrar. It makes sense that all of the mile markers with their accompanying directional signage were not so prominently featured in what is a very complex theory. Presenting development as set, distinct levels of growth makes it more understandable. Yet as a result, developmental theory is often portrayed as a stairway to heaven type experience, one in which we stand solidly on one step or the next, solidly in one room or another. As I dug into an exploration of fallback with the key thinkers who comprise my dissertation research think tank, one of them, Chuck Pallas, a master of metaphors, offered a different perspective. In our conversations, he examined what is referred to in the field as one's center of gravity developmental stage. The center of gravity is meant to point to the developmental place from which one makes meaning most of the time. And this is generally described as a particular stage with a specific corresponding definition. In Chuck's pondering, he explored what our physical center of gravity looks like on a staircase. He explained that when we are walking up a set of stairs, our head might be furthest out in front torso leaning slightly forward of our hips, one leg trailing behind. And the process of ascending that staircase, we are very fleetingly, if at all, solidly upright, head over shoulders, over waist, over knees, over feet. In fact, to maintain our center of gravity on the incline, we must necessarily have weight distributed along the plane in order to not topple over. Similarly, in our developmental movement, we are very rarely solidly on one stair or in one room, or as it were, in one stage. There can be a part of us pushing forward toward what we call our leading edge. And there is also a part that lags behind still held in balance by a prior way of knowing and seeing the world. 
to say that my own experience of development was marked by a perfect postured and consistent center of gravity stage of development would be laughable. While I knew that I could at times get to the peak of my developmental capability, I realized that there were so many more times when I settled into the plateaus of my capacity and other times, much more frequent than I wanted to admit, that I experienced significant disequilibrium sinking deep into the valley of my sense-making and acting. So where was this in the theory? Was I some sort of statistical anomaly? Or was there something lying in the shadows that needed to be brought into the light in order to paint the full landscape of our developmental terrain? I found something that was incredibly unsettling in myself that I could not make sense of through the literature, and I set out to find the answer. Bill Torbert had referenced a phenomenon that he called fallback in development. David McCallum was the first to document empirically the experience of fallback in individuals at each of the levels of development. Fallback, also referred to as temporary regression in McCallum's research, described the experience of temporarily not being able to access one's most complex capacity for sense-making and acting. It is from this mile marker that I embarked to discover all I could about fallback. I was fortunate to have six fellow inquirers accompany me on my expedition as the key thinkers in my dissertation research. William Torbert, Suzanne Cook-Reuter, and Robert Keegan are three of the original pioneers in the mapping of adult development theory. Jennifer Garvey Berger, well studied in the developmental maps articulated by Keegan, Torbert, and Cook-Reuter, expanded upon their use and application with her work to help individuals and organizations cultivate leadership. As noted, David McCallum was the first to empirically observe fallback in his own research exploring adaptive self-scaffolds, the behaviors that help individuals engage challenges with intention and purpose. And Chuck Pallas had spent his career developing leadership programs informed by a curiosity about the intersection of multiple disciplines, adult development, leadership, and beyond. The wisdom and knowledge of these six greatly shaped my own understanding of how humans develop over the lifespan and the role that fallback plays in their development. Nearly a decade following my original research with these key thinkers, we would reconvene as I neared completion of the research for this book to explore what we were still curious about as we considered the phenomenon of fallback bumped up against it in our own lives, accompanied others in their experiences, and faced into an ever more uncertain world in which our individual and our collective fallback was calling for address. During our recent convening, Pallas considered the ways in which the positivist framing of development as a journey toward enlightenment has infiltrated our practice in unhelpful ways. He referenced the writing of Elaine Herdman Barker and Nancy Wallace, 
who note the desire of organizations to have their people transform to the most complex level of development, thereby equipping them with the full suite of developmental capacities. Palace summarized the example they offer, explaining, especially these days, it seems like it's the imperative of the people. We want our people to be at the transforming stage. Yep, that's it. Look at this list of virtues. Lawrence Colbert called it the bag of virtues. Organizational leaders just see this whole checklist and think, if all people could do this, that would be great. And then somebody who's clearly been scored at a transforming level behaves badly in a meeting and otherwise exhibits a whole host of frustrating personality characteristics and they're kind of amazed. What happened? Here's the quote. I thought that by transforming, all such glitches would have been ironed out. Palace continued. And of course, we know that's not the case. We don't lose all our glitches. We don't lose the primitive stuff in our personality just by being at a later stage. So I really like that as a corrective because as scholars, academics, and consultants, we shy away from the mystery and the enigmas. We want our clients to know that there's research and there's a model and they can depend on the model and quote the model. But if we tell them, well, it's a lot messier than that, then that's often difficult. McCallum agreed, noting the disconnect that people experience when they're pushed toward development doesn't yield them the sweetness and light experience that they were aiming for. He posited, the obsession with moving forward and getting to the later stages has been very harmful. And the degree of self-idealization which then just creates more neurosis and unhappiness. And I'll notice that in myself as I think over the years. I think about my idea when I first started studying development. Oh my gosh, this is going to solve everything if we can get everybody down the conveyor belt. Certainly this point around, how can I just step into my more compassionate self? It might be in some ways, the healthier question for a lot of us to ask ourselves and others. While development opens up more options, allows us to see ourselves more clearly and gives us more tools, there's also incredible pain and loss in the truthful seeing. As McCallum noted, the later stages are not the promised land and not being there does not make you bad or less than or incapable. We say this often in the field of adult development. Later is not better. We must transcend and include. Nonetheless, there is a tendency in this positivist field to only focus on the bag of virtues that is yours for the taking at the later developmental stages. In our sales pitch for development, we implicitly denigrate the earlier stages and with them, the earlier parts of self that are still very present in our cast of characters. 
and we fail to really appreciate the gifts that that earlier self has to offer to us and others. Palace appreciated our colleagues Herdman Barker and Wallace, naming the complexity of what it is to be human. He explained, Elaine and Nancy sort of poke at the elephant in the room in our field, which is that human development is exquisitely complicated. People are exquisitely complicated. They're recognizing the essential messiness and mystery and the contextualized, dissonant, enigmatic nature of human development. Our orientation in the field of adult development and the practice of leadership development is to the top of the mountain. Fallback runs counter to the prevailing leaning in the field and the one we often perpetuate with those we support along their developmental journeys, that the answer to all life's problems will be found if we race to the later developmental stages. By orienting this way, we fail to secure a solid base upon which the terrain of our development can be built. Pallas and McCallum cautioned us to take heed of the false promises of rapid ascension to the pinnacle of our development. Fallback offers us the opportunity to solidify that base. <laughs>